Good evening, church. Third John 2, beloved, I pray that in all respects that you may prosper and be in good health as your soul prospers. We're looking at emotionally healthy spirituality. First week, we talked about the happiness heresy, the demand to be happier and to be happier and to be happiest. And yet, Many times it's in our lack of happiness that God will use those very circumstances to draw us deeper into himself. And then last week we highlighted from Peter Scazzaro's book by the same title, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, we highlighted some of the problems that indicate that maybe we're not quite as whole on the inside as God would have us. And you can go back and listen to that message For the sake of time, but tonight I want to talk about the poison of productivity. And I introduced this last week, but this is such a subtle thing for us. It's like a drug addict. They say that cocaine addicts are always looking for their first high, and they spend the rest of their addicted life trying to recreate that first high. And the problem with the poison of productivity is that our productivity can become a drug because it hits us. We like the way that it makes us feel, but then the problem is we need more and more of it in order for the feeling to remain the same. Whether it's a sense of our well-being, whether it's a sense of our self-worth. So we have to do more, work harder, produce more in order just to get the same result. Very interesting. My wife and I met in music school, 1975. We're both musicians. And one of my teachers, in trying to motivate me one day, I was not nearly as good a student as my wife, And I tended not to like the practice room quite as much as she did. And if you're in music school, if you're not practicing between three and six hours a day, then you're really not getting it done. And I was not in that range, let me just put it that way. And my applied professor, the guy that actually was training me on my instrument, he said, you know, he said, for every hour you're not in the practice room, somebody else is. Now, I thought to myself, now, that's a very odd way to motivate me. I mean, I'm 18, 19 years old. I'm not thinking about what this looks like as I'm going to try to go out and and be competitive and try to make a living with this. I mean, we know that all musicians that go to music school, they learn to say things like, would you like fries with that? I mean, so that's, that's pretty much what an arts degree sets one up for is a brilliant career in fast food, unless... You're one of those that are spending six hours a day in the practice room, which I was not. But that, if you're not being more productive, if you're not working harder, somebody's going to get your slot. But you know, the thing that got me to music school was not whether or not I was going to be competitive or be better than someone else. You know what got me to music school? A love for music. That's the reason that I went. 
because I loved it. It was something that was a language that all of a sudden something, something communicated to my soul. And so the whole idea of turning it into something whereby which now you got to figure out how to monetize this and market this and you got to figure out how to be better than the next guy. It's like, wow, man, the whole love for this thing just kind of gets lost. And yet how many of us bring that same experience many times to our Christian experience? Is that we come and God woos us with his love. And then the next thing you know, we begin to work and produce and more. And if I do more of this, then God will love me more somehow. And then our worth gets tied to our function, our productivity. And we get busy for God rather than an emphasis of simply being with him. And it's so interesting how our spirituality many times can actually work against this intimacy with God. And as a result, begin to have negative effect even on who we are and our emotional well-being. Scazzaro says, uses, uses this phrase, it's using God to run from God. And this is, these are his words, and I quote, On the surface, all appears to be healthy and working. But it's not. All those hours and hours spent lost in one Christian book after another, all those Christian responsibilities outside the home or going from one seminar to another, all that extra time in prayer and Bible study, and at times we use these Christian activities as an unconscious attempt to escape, escape from pain. Scazzaro, in my case, using God to run from God is when I create a great deal of God activity to ignore more difficult areas in my life that God wants to change. And then he begins to highlight what this might look like. When I do God's work to satisfy me, not him. When I do things in his name that he never asked me to do. You know, I'm one of these guys that my wife can tell you, I, 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 love, to, I, I love a list. I mean, my day off, I mean, I love to, I mean, not that I'm getting up early, don't get me wrong, but I mean, I, I, I feel good about my day off when I can go to bed at night and I've worked my list. Come on, I've done this outside, I cleaned this, you know, I, I mean, whatever it might be, you know, I, I, got, I got this reading done and I, I dug out my inbox a little bit, whatever, whatever the task was, then all of a sudden I go to bed feeling really good about me. Or when somehow I think this is what God's been asking of me in this moment. Never forget years ago, fasting. And God had me on a very interesting fasting regimen that I literally fasted half the week. So three and a half days I didn't eat and three and a half days I did eat. And so we went to the, got to the end of a 12-month period of time and we came to the holidays and the Lord kind of released me from the requirements of that fast, which was very nice. Thank you very much. But then January came and I immediately went back onto this fast. And all of a sudden, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. 
Whereas the previous year, it was not an issue. There was grace. There was presence. And I went back into it in January, and all of a sudden, God wasn't anywhere near it. And I was like, God, what, what am I doing wrong here? He said, I didn't call you to this when you called yourself to it. You made an assumption because that was the requirement in that season. It's the requirement in this season. And son, I never called you to this fast. Very interesting. When I demonstrate Christian behaviors, so people will think well of me. When I exaggerate my accomplishments for God to suddenly compete with others. When I pronounce the Lord told me I should do this. When the truth is, I think the Lord told me to do it. Spiritual disciplines. You know, that's a word that I, I, I understand why we use it. But how many of you, when you hear that word, all those two words used together, how many of you just, just wither just a little bit? Can we, can we, come on, can we just break it down and get real here for a moment? Spiritual disciplines. Oh. <laughs> because we're not even sure where our Bible is. I mean, much less reading it every day. Where did I put it last? Or this idea of prayer. And, 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 and so we, we, we hear these words used in context with each other. It's just like, when mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the least disciplined person on the planet of them all? Me. And so we immediately put these words together and we immediately, we write ourselves out of this. Hmm. Interesting. But let me ask you even about spiritual disciplines. Is it about find, is finding God or is it relying on the disciplines to feed something in our soul and our worth? Once again, why do we do it? Read your Bible. Finish the sentence. That's a great thing. Wonderful. Do it. It's truth. Why? What did Jesus say? These are the scriptures that what? Testify about me. And yet... That statement was made in context with the Pharisees. It was a what? It was a rebuke. You think that by reading the scriptures, you think that by your knowledge of scripture, that somehow you think you possess eternal life, but you've missed the whole point of what all of this scholarship is all about, boys. This scholarship, everything that's written here, it's about me. You're missing the obvious here. Interesting. And yet, we can apply this same idea of using God, of giving. I'm giving because, yes, it's the right thing to do, or I feel better when I give. Service, worship. Hmm. It makes me feel better. But it's amazing that, just like that drug, it makes you feel better for a moment, but it's amazing what a fast-acting and it's amazing how quickly the effects of the drug wear off. It's really interesting. We come into an amazing moment of worship. And we're being touched and our endorphins are rolling out. I mean, we just feel, it feels great. And we're not even at the car until the effects of the moment are gone. Hmm. I was raised as a heathen Episcopalian. 
And I'm not, I'm, hey, I'm not throwing any shade on Episcopalians. Listen, you can be a heathen anything, all right? But I was a heathen Episcopalian. I mean, but I learned. I mean, I learned when to stand and kneel and sit. And, you know, I, I, I got catechized and I, I learned all the right stuff at the right time. It's only one problem. I, I, I did all the right stuff. And it's interesting that even when my parents stopped going to church, even as a teenager, I would go myself. Why? Because I felt better because I've been to church this week. I feel better about me having been to church. There's only one problem. I may have felt better about me, but I was no more intimate with Christ at the end of the day than I was before I ever walked in at 11 a.m. Interesting. And this is sadly the plight of many, many people that feel connected to a church. Are you a believer? Oh, I go to church. I pastored in North Carolina for many, many years. And part of our challenge with evangelism is that everybody was saved because everybody was attached to a church. You wanted to talk to them about their soul. You wanted to talk to them about Jesus. And they would immediately begin to what? Rip off their church membership to you. Oh, yeah, I'm a member of First United Apostolic Holiness. You know, I mean, title this long, but I mean. But they were connected to a church. They were good. So as long as they were clocking in and clocking out, their, their, their soul was okay. But how many of you know eternally their soul wasn't okay? And it's this idea of being doing for God instead of being with God. Casero again works another list here. Doing lots of work for God is a sure sign of a growing spirituality. These are problems. That it's all up to you and you'll never finish while you're alive on the earth. God can't move unless you pray. You ever heard that one? There was some famous Christian fiction that was written about 20 years ago. Everybody loved these books. But theologically, they were nightmares, truly, because they, they sadly kind of laid out a subtle blueprint of how strategic level spiritual warfare was supposed to operate in the role of the believer. And, and if these folk would only just pray a little bit more, then I could do something. But oh, I'm shackled because these folks won't pray. How many of you know that God has never been bound up by what you do or don't do? I mean, he kind of reminded me, he kind of had to remind Job, uh, excuse me, but where were you? Come on, you want to have a man conversation? Let's have a man conversation. Where were you when I did all this stuff? And so sometimes I think that we humor ourselves that somehow the divine design of God, God's plans not just for your life, but God's plans that are outworking even among us right now is somehow limited by your response or lack of response or mine. I got to tell you, that's too much weight for me to carry. I'm sorry. I, I, I got the whole world in my hands. It don't work. Then you might immediately then ask the question, then Pastor, Pastor Jim, why pray? We don't pray because we have to. We pray because we get to. It is the language that God has given us in order to have fellowship and intimacy with him. We move on through Scazzaro's list. 
You're responsible to share Christ around you at all times or people will go to hell. Things will fall apart if you don't persevere and hold things together. How many of you have felt this? Somehow it's up to me. And we wonder many times, where's the testimony? Why are people asking us, I want what you have? Hmm. Are these things wrong? Is it wrong that we would share our faith? Is it wrong that we pray? Of course, of course not. But it becomes the emphasis and the motivation of why we do these things. Scazzaro again. Work for God that's not nourished by a deep interior life with God will eventually be contaminated by other things such as ego, power, needing approval of and from others, and buying into the wrong ideas of success and the mistaken belief that we can't fail. You know that last statement right there? That somehow we're always marked out for success. I don't know, but last time I checked, it was a pretty, it was a pretty grim list in Hebrews of the fathers of the, 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 the champions of the faith. Many of them didn't end up what the world would call successful. Fat bank accounts and living to ripe old ages and retirement homes didn't quite work out that way for them. And yet these were commended as the heroes of the faith. How do we even define success? And when we work for God, Scazzaro again, because of these things, our experience of the gospel falls off center. And our experiential sense of worth and validation, it shifts from God's unconditional love for us in Christ to our works and our performance. And oh my goodness, ladies and gentlemen, hear me well. If the enemy can get us on this hamster wheel of works, it can get us that somehow we love more if we work more. Let me tell you, the enemy doesn't have to do anything but put us on autopilot. And we will spend the rest of our days wearing ourselves out, trying to prove our worth to ourselves and thinking that we're trying to prove it to God. Saints, hear me again. The proof of your worth can never be validated or manifested in any way greater than Christ's death on the cross with you in mind. And for us to think that we can somehow work to make that better, to get God to love us more, could I say to you how insidious that is? Because what it does unconsciously is that it diminishes the work of the cross. We would never come to this table, this communion table together and say, ain't such a big deal. We would never do it. The reverence that happens in that moment where we remember what Christ did for us, we, we, we would never come to that moment thinking, yeah, but I need to add a little something, something to that. We don't do it in that moment. But what do we do the rest of the month? When we're not celebrating that table. Where does it get worked in that somehow we've got to add something to get God to love us more? 
And what happens is that the joy of Christ gradually dissipates in our life. The joy leaks out. It's amazing. The music school story again. When all of a sudden you're in the practice room and it's like, I've got to practice more. I've got to play faster. I've got to play better so that I can get a seat and get a chair in the orchestra. I've got to play better so that I, I, can, I can win the audition or get the gig or get the job. Then all of a sudden, it's not about the joy of music making anymore. All of a sudden now, what was intended to bring joy to self and others, now it denigrates into works. Oh, we do the same thing. These things that were designed to create intimacy with Christ, all of a sudden now they become something wholly different. And it's our activity from God can only properly flow from an inner life with him. Doing for God in a way that's proportionate to our being with God It's the only pathway to a pure heart and seeing God well. But Pastor Jim, aren't there good works? Are you saying that? No, that's not what I'm saying. Scripture's very, very clear about good works. Yes, they're there. That he's prepared in advance for us to do. But let's look at the whole passage of Scripture just for a moment. It's not about good works, but it's in the context of the grace of God. Ephesians chapter 2, read it. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Verse 9, not by, come on, works, so that no one can boast. And then we move on, for we are God's workmanship. What does that mean? It means God's the one that does it, not us. We are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. But what is the context of this? It is the ordination of God. It is the empowering of God. It is the grace of God. The disciples asked Jesus, what are the works that are required? He said, just one. This is the work of God, to believe in the one whom the Father sent. That is our work now, is to believe. Philippians 2.13, it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Years ago, I would get ready to go into a ministry moment. Particularly as it involved ministry, prophetic ministry over people. And there was this, always this panic. I just, ah! I mean, you know, you can, you can kind of get up sometimes and have your notes and do a bad job presenting, but you can get through the moment. But when you're standing in front of a stranger and they're like, all right, prophet boy, I want my word. I got my recorder in your face and I'm getting ready to build the next five years of my life about what you're getting ready to say. So don't mess this up, prophet boy. It's just a little bit of pressure. You know what I'm talking about? And so there was this modicum of panic that would always come upon. And I'm, I mean, you know, you, you, can, you can get real spiritual in a moment like that. I mean, you're talking in tongues, you know, the four scriptures you've memorized, you, you know, you're quoting those. And 
I mean, you know, you pull it all out. And I just remember one night being in the green room and the Holy Spirit. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm getting my thing on here. You know, he said, he said God said, let's, let's try something different tonight. Because my prayer was always, oh, God, anoint your humble servant. Don't make me look bad. God, anoint me. You know, if I was a little bit less self-centered, oh, God, speak to these people tonight. Anoint me for this moment. God said, why don't we try this a little differently? Why don't we go do this together? Rather than you asking me to anoint you, why don't we go do this together? And I thought, oh, there's a novel idea. And many times we get this idea, this concept of the, the anointing <laughs> that somehow gets disembodied from the person of Jesus. Are, are, are you get, hear me? Well, you know, I got to be anointed for this. What does that mean? It means to get in yoke with Christ. That's what that's all being anointed means is that the line between you and him gets so thin you can't find it anymore. This is what anointing is. This is how it's defined. And I see so many believers and they're working so hard and they're a mess. And no one wants to be around them. Much less they don't want what they've got because they say, you know what? (laughs) I got all the angst I need. I don't need a Christian version of your angst. Thank you very much. I'm all stocked up here. And as I've been doing this for a moment, it's not the anointed men and women that I'm attracted to that can sing and preach and prophesy and do these amazing things, start churches. I mean, these are great people. But you know, they're not the ones that I'm attracted to anymore. You know the ones that I want to be with? They have an aroma about them. Smells like bread, by the way. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. It's like walking, walking into the airport and you smell Cinnabon. It's like you're not thinking cinnamon roll, but you smell it. It's like. I mean, you become like a robot. I must have 3,000 calories. I mean, because what is it? It's the aroma. You didn't even know you wanted it till you smelled it. What do you stink like? Yeah, but he's anointed. Yeah, but oh my goodness, have you? Have, oh wow, and he can, and and she can, and and it's, they're a mate. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. But you know what? I don't know that they're the ones that people really are running down and saying, what are you wearing? What have you got? It's that aroma. It's that life that is spoken of in Scripture. To the one is the aroma of life, the other the aroma of death. Interesting. Luke 10, and I'll close with this. You know the story, Mary and Martha. 
It's a beautiful way just to bring this to a point. I mean, Martha's working. She's getting it done. She's putting it out. And Mary's just there, just receiving, just receiving. Finally, Martha says, really? She's not serving in the nursery. She's not on the worship team. She's not leading the small group. She hadn't made any disciples this year. Come on, Jesus, jack her up. Let's get it. Chip, chop, chip. I mean, let's get some modern vernacular attached to this. Come on, Jesus, I'm all about the mission here. She's just sitting around. Jesus said, Martha, Martha. (laughs) You're worried and upset about so many things. But only one thing is needed. And Mary's chosen what's better. And you know, long after she doesn't have the applause and long after she doesn't have the same function, long after she's not doing the things that she's doing now, all that stuff's going to go away. But you know, the one thing that Mary's doing, it will never be taken away from her. Some of us need to redefine ministry. We see ministry so many times as those things that are external and they can be quantified. They can be testified about. But can I submit to you that the majority of the ministry that God has called you and I to, it's like the 90% of the iceberg underneath the, underneath the water that nobody ever sees. I have people come to me and I'm sure Pastor Donnell and the other pastors, how long do you pray every day? What kind of question is that? I have young preachers come and say, how long does it take you to do your preaching? How long does it take you to do your message? Famous preacher, I would, I, I, that if I called his name, you'd know him. One of, the greatest ex, one of the greatest exegetes of our generation. He says, it takes me an hour to put a sermon together. But it takes me a week to prepare the man. A week to, uh, an hour to prepare the message, but a week to prepare the man. You know why? Because we understand that ministry is defined not just what can be seen, it's what's not seen. It's what is, what is being supported here. That maybe we're not getting any accolades and affirmation from those to the left and to the right. But our ministry is defined by what we do with our wives, our children what we do unto the Lord, that it never, do, it never has any external workings whereby which we feel good about it. Wow. And we work, we strive, and we lose our joy and our souls become brittle, fragile. We wonder, why am I so angry? Why does that bother me? Most of the time is an indication some place we're emotionally unhealthy. And it's a place that we need to get back before God. We need to rehydrate in the water of the Spirit. We need to regain the resilience in our souls. Not just, not just that our spirits will get stronger so we can fight back, but we become resilient in our souls. So when we get pressed against, we don't crumble and crack 
but there's a flexibility, there's a resilience, there's a pushback in our emotions as well. This is as a result of being emotionally healthy. Amen.